0: Welcome to A Year on Tour with Wittinghus. Here's your host, Hans Christian Wittinghus. Hi guys and girls. Just a quick message to thank Josh and Billy, my two latest patrons. Which means I am now on 17 patrons. And to be a bit ambitious, I think my next goal should be 25. So let's see when I can reach that number. At the end of the show today, after the interview with today's guest, I revealed the winners of my two signed shirts, a competition I launched in my latest episode for all of my patrons. If you want to support the work I do as well with this podcast and get it out to even more badminton lovers, you can go to patreon.com slash to do so. You can donate any amount you like and you can stop your donations at any time. There's no binding whatsoever. If you don't want to support with a donation, you can also support by sharing the podcast or simply just rate it and give it a review on your podcast app. It does take long and it makes a huge difference for the podcast visibility. Most importantly though, you already support by just listening to the episodes, so I want to thank all of you for doing just that. Now sit back, relax and enjoy today's interview. My guest today is one of England's most successful players in recent times, a former world champion, All-England champion, and Olympic silver medalist. He's been ranked number one in the world in mixed doubles, and he won six individual medals at the Commonwealth Games, including a gold. He was always a lot of fun to watch play, and in my eyes, he's one of the biggest personalities of English badminton ever. It's, of course, Nathan Robertson. Welcome to the show, Nathan. Thank you. Pleasure to be here, Hoko. My pleasure, all my pleasure. How's life in England right now with all the restrictions and COVID 19?
1: Uh, well, it's a different world we're definitely living in right now. Um, I'm missing, obviously, being at the tournaments and the competitions, uh, especially for the players I'm coaching. I feel really hard for those guys because, um, you know, they're working hard and they hopefully deserve to play some competitions soon. Um, but I'm enjoying life. I enjoyed being stuck at home and uh, spending more time with my girlfriend and family. And uh, yeah, I do a lot of cycling. So this has allowed me to put some more miles in my legs.
0: Yeah. All right. Do, do you, are you actually allowed to do training in the uh, in the badminton hall at the moment?
1: Uh, yeah, we are. Um, there was um, government uh, allowed kind of elite sport to come back um, earlier. Oh, okay. Um, even though England was locked down for a lot longer than a lot of other countries, especially European countries. But yeah, we've been back in training now for two to three months. So we are ready to play some competitions when they come. Yeah, so am I. So am I. What about, Nathan, the uh,
0: ice hockey season in England? Is that on hold as well?
1: Well, that's, yeah, obviously, for those who don't know, I'm a huge (laughs) ice hockey fan and I follow... You know, I follow the NHL in America a lot, but I also have a, a home team, the Milton Keynes Lightning, who who play in the second tier of English ice hockey. And um, I, I always go to as many matches as, as I can when I'm not at badminton tournaments. Um, but that season is also on hold because it's an indoor sport in England. Mm. Then, yeah, maybe we're not looking at a season until 2021. So I'm definitely missing that. And I also play a bit every Monday night and I haven't been able to do that. So. No no poor ice hockey training for me or even watching some better players playing.
0: No, that's pretty cool. You actually play yourself. Are you like a defender or a forward?
1: No, I'm kind of... uh, I'd like to say a midfielder, but you don't really have that in ice hockey, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) But it's just really, really amateur level, just playing with a lot of guys who are trying to get a little bit better. But it's very social. And like you say, you just get on the ice and pretend you're a good ice hockey player for a little bit but i love dressing up in all the padding and all the kit and yeah it does make you feel big <laughs> yeah yeah i'm sure it does you're, you're the
0: only uh, english person i've ever met who, uh, who has any interest in ice hockey so that's why i simply had to put it on the podcast because i've seen so many tweets or uh, yeah posts on social media from you when you're supporting uh, yeah the the lightning team
1: Exactly, I try and take uh, a few of the English players to go and watch, and uh, a lot of them have enjoyed it actually. So, but they're not total converts like I am.
0: No, but it's a great sport to to watch as a spectator. I've been to a few matches in Denmark as well. Right, anyway, we're not only going to talk uh, ice hockey, Nathan. Uh, so let's just move on to uh, to talking uh, Babenson. As always I'm uh, dividing the interview into three uh, bigger uh, parts or subjects and the first one uh, I've uh, kind of called the uh, the golden years I want to talk to you about the uh, the years 2004 5 and 6 because when I uh, when I look at your results there are quite a few uh, amazing results in in those uh, three years starting with the Olympic silver in uh, in Athens in 2004 the All England gold in 2005 and the world championship gold in, uh, in 2006. And often when, uh, when, we, uh, when I talk with uh, badminton friends and we, we have this uh, little game or quiz where we ask each other, so would you rather win a world championship gold or an Olympic silver? And then you have to choose. And it's not so often I get the chance to actually ask someone who achieved those two results. Yeah. So <laughs> w- which one do you prefer, the Olympic silver or the world uh, championship gold?
1: I like them both. I like that they both hang on my wall. That's a nice feeling. Um, But um, I also get asked this quite a lot. Um, And so does Gail, my former partner. And uh, we have different answers, actually. Um, So I was someone who hated losing. Uh, And unfortunately, uh, when you win an Olympic silver, you lose a game or you lose your final game. And you have to stand on on a piece of wood, which is just a little bit lower than... Uh, the people who get the gold medal and I was also you know I just loved um, winning championships and stepping on uh, the top of the podium you got to hear your own national anthem and um, so I think winning and being world champion uh, is a higher one for me even though it brought maybe a little less recognition um, but I also think the world championships is potentially a harder competition to win um, so, and yeah, that was a lot of, I had a lot of feeling for the World Championship that, that year because uh, I honestly think that I could have won it the year before, uh, where mm. we, were, we were top seed going into the competition and playing so well, like winning the All England. And then I had a, you know, just in practice the night before in America, I had a really bad injury and tore my ankle ligaments. So I had a lot of bad feeling from that year going into the next year where I was even more motivated. So it has a special feeling for me.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. That was actually going to be one of my next questions. So you're, uh, you're already ahead of me here, but that's perfect. But would you then actually say, because for me, the Olympics, the World Championships and All England are like the three big individual titles. And when, when you feel like that about winning, or so strong about winning, would you then actually say you also maybe rate the All England title higher than the Olympic silver for you personally?
1: Um, I don't think I rate it higher. Um, just, I know it's such a prestigious event and being English at the All England, um, but I had like a love-hate relationship with the All England, um, because in the early years I played it, I just didn't have any success at all. I never made it past a quarter-final. Um, huh so i had this feeling where i loved it but i also dreaded march and i was thinking oh no all england's coming and never never really get a good opportunity or play that well there so um but then obviously in 2005 it just kind of all came together um but interestingly that was off the back of probably the worst period of form that i've ever had off the back of the 2004 olympics Uh, okay where I did, myself and Gail, we didn't win many matches from after the Olympics to before the All England. Um, Maybe our training wasn't 100% focused. Uh, (laughs) Maybe that's why. (laughs) Uh, And my condition, you know, in the end of 2004 wasn't, definitely wasn't up to um, the level that I would, I would want. So um, yeah, we then uh, refocused and targeted the All England. And I think especially myself, whenever I refocused and had one specific target in mind, then it nearly always worked out very well for me. Yeah.
0: And you must have picked up uh, quite a bit of form after that. England, because as you said, in 2005, you were top seats at the world championships in, in August. So you must have been world number one uh, at, at that time, right? Yeah, we
1: were, we were flying and, um, yeah, I, in America it was in uh, Orange County in LA then yeah we we went there so confident and yeah it was just i know i was the worst person to be around for about one month after the uh, world (laughs) championships when i got injured um and i was laying by a pool in la sort of where all the competition and just telling people don't come and talk to me about badminton because (laughs) (laughs) it's not my friend right now
0: Hmm. it's it's actually it's fun for me to hear because i've always seen you as a like a very easygoing uh, type of person, uh, so I, I would maybe think that you're also quite good at just uh, letting go of uh, disappointments and and just uh, refocusing. But but maybe that that's not really the case.
1: Um, no, it's definitely and specifically, like I said, I was looking back on my career when I when I had a target, like a real clear focus, and the World Championships in two thousand and five was. Absolutely, we were focused, we trained really well, we were confident, uh, I thought we would win it. Um, and then, when that's taken away from you, then yeah, I get in a bad mood.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I imagine, do, do you remember who won it in 2005?
1: I don't, I never looked at the results. <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Somebody who had the medals that we could have had. That's what I don't know. Yeah,
0: someone who, who wasn't supposed to win. Yeah. I want to talk uh, to you a bit about the Olympics. Uh, even though you say you you prefer the uh, yeah winning, uh, the Olympics is just uh, one of the memories that are, are clearest in in my mind. Even though I actually re- I remember your All England final in two thousand and five as well, because you were playing uh, Danes in the final, right?
1: Yeah, we were. That was a great match. I loved that one. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Uh, well I want to talk to you about the final of the of the Olympics. because uh, when I was uh, doing research for this podcast, I, I saw a few rallies and I also saw the score that it was 15-12 in the in the decider. Yeah. Do, do you have the feeling that the, the goal kind of slipped away or or how, how, how was that match for you guys? Were you always trying to catch up or
1: um I don't feel like the gold slipped away because we weren't favourite for gold going in, actually. Yeah. Going into the, the Olympics 2004, I thought we had an OK chance maybe of a bronze medal. We were top yeah. four ranked, so we had a good seeding to make it. But then we had some amazing pairs who were almost unbeatable, like Kim Dong-moon and Ra Kyung-min. Yeah. They'd not lost for so long, so, and we were in the same half as them. So it wasn't really looking like we were going to make the final. Uh, but then until the dames yeah, the dames (laughs) dames came along uh, Yeah, uh, rasmussen and olsen came along and i remember very happily sitting watching that match and then thinking (laughs) the dames in the semi-final Uh, so that was really nice Um, but yeah the final i wouldn't say we were confident but we knew we were playing really well because the semi-final had gone really well and then Mm -hmm. we were the first um British or Team GB pair ever to get to a final so we'd already achieved something completely unique as far as badminton in Great Britain was concerned Um, and we we were confident and then the first game we got absolutely smashed uh, uh, (laughs) 15-1 by Zhang Jun Gao Ling and it was as if we were just kind of playing they were playing badminton from a different planet it was so uh, so powerful and aggressive and yeah we were kind of shell shocked um but something happened and we found something it wasn't a tactic or anything like that it was just found some character and a and a desire to fight um just for one point each time and uh yeah we were leading in the third game uh, after turning it around but only by a few points but i think the experience of the chinese who had won gold in 2000 i think that experience just uh, shone through so uh, yeah, it was it was tough, but we were still, on reflection, um, pretty proud and amazed at, at that Olympics. Yeah, I I understand
0: that, and you 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 should be. I, I would be pretty happy and proud if I won a, a silver medal at the Olympics. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> a- apart from uh, from those results, the World's All Englands, and uh, and the Olympics, are there any other? Uh, Tournaments or wins that you you look back on and think as as some of the highlights of your career, or is it those uh, three that, that that fills the most in in your mind when you think of your career?
1: Yeah, they're certainly the top three. Um, you know, I know I'm very known for uh, mixed doubles, obviously, because almost all my all my top results and winning tournaments um, have been mainly in mixed doubles. But I'm I'm really proud. I won a. Brought a bronze medal at the World Championships um, back in '99 um, with, uh, with a great a player called Simon Archer, who was a brilliant partner to play with. He taught me a lot about sort of on court character and how you can have a mental battle across the net with your opponents. Uh, so I'm really proud of that. Um, and also, myself and Anthony Clark in men's doubles, uh, we won the first uh, Super Series title. Um, for England uh, back in 2009 at the Singapore Open and there's sometimes in a tournament everything goes your way and you play what you like to call like perfect badminton or you've got the golden racket Uh, and I remember in the final we'd played really well up there we'd be in the top Chinese top Malaysians top Taipei pair and then in the final we had uh, Kido and Setiawan who were Olympic champions and then We beat them 21-10, 21-11. And it's kind of, you just don't do that. (laughs) That's crazy. That's absolutely crazy. Yeah, it's kind of, you play a match against the Olympic champions and you play to a level where they don't have a chance. And that kind of just never happens. So they're kind of one-off games. Um, But it's amazing to think that, yeah, we did that on that one occasion. You
0: talking about men's doubles is actually uh, the perfect switch over to the next uh, subject we're going to talk about because that is talking about men's doubles. Because as you say, you are mostly known for, uh, recognized for for your mixed doubles results. Uh, and I was actually going to ask you if you feel like you are not recognized enough for your achievements in in men's doubles. Because as you say, you have a world bronze medal, you have this uh, Singapore Open win, and I think when I looked it up, you also had a. a highest rank of uh, number four in the world at, uh, at one point so that is absolutely world-class results but I think if you ask most people they would say Nathan Robertson he, he's a mixed doubles player D- do you feel like you, you were never recognized enough for your uh, men's double skills?
1: Um, I think I think when you look back at the results obviously um, mixed doubles stands out because we did achieve a lot and we won you know, we won a lot of tournaments around the world, Malaysia, Thailand, All England, Singapore, Switzerland a couple of times. So we won a lot of different mixed doubles tournaments and and the men's doubles, we only won one. And yeah, we had high ranking. Um, but, you know, if you ask a lot of players um, who are my age, then I'm sure they will have um, a lot of memories of of me as a men's doubles player because I was actually a net player or a net person playing at the net which you wouldn't think translates well to be a mixed doubles player Um, but I was I was the guy always charging into the net and uh, trying to take people on so it's um, it is always interesting because a lot of the younger players I coach now they they think I must have been the player who was just working around the rear of the court which isn't true in men's doubles Mm so uh, myself and Anthony we were always fighting to be the one at the net. Okay Uh, so he also wanted to go to the net yeah, we both, we both were net players and that comes a little bit by because when I was um, a young player training with Anthony, because we grew up in the same city, uh, we didn't always have coaches when we were training, often we would just go and book a court and we would just play net shot games for like one okay. or two hours sometimes, uh, a little bit of training obviously and then net shot games and that's how we created this sort of net skill. Um, so yeah, I think right. we always had this competition and when we were playing together it was like who's going to play around the net? Yeah, uh, all right. I actually uh, thought he,
0: w- he would be uh, like a baseline player so he could hit his uh, annoying uh, stop drop,
1: uh, that, that amazing <laughs> yeah, shot he had. It was <laughs> a great shot. He did like hitting that and, and big smashes when we were playing together. So yeah, uh, you've he, uh, he kind of always just said, okay, let's just get the net and then I'll hit the big smash. He will hit it. <laughs>
0: Actually, remember uh, when you uh, when you won that uh, tournament in, in Singapore? Uh, I, I was still playing as well, and I, I think I probably lost in the qualifying or something like that. But I I remember uh, watching the final, and then uh, I think two hours later or something like that, I met you guys at the uh, at the hotel in the elevator, and you were already drinking champagne. You were holding glasses and a bottle, uh, and you were already starting uh, a, a good party
1: back then. And, and oh, yeah. it, it makes sense. It makes sense with the the results you produced. Yeah, it's always important to celebrate. You know, we um, as players, of course, we can talk about amazing results and mm. you know all these lists of wins. But you still lose more matches than you win in your career, and you know almost every single player. Um, so when you actually achieve something which you think is special, then you have to celebrate it. I do remember that we had a competition the week after, um, but mm. it doesn't matter. You still have to go and celebrate it. I think I was jumping in the hotel swimming pool at, about two hours after that match with that bottle of champagne. Yeah,
0: so. <laughs> well, that makes me uh, happy to hear because I think when I talk to uh, a few of the uh, the older generation players who've been very successful, they often talk about if they could change one thing, that they would have celebrated the wins uh, a bit more. And that, that sometimes makes me sad to hear that, that you
1: don't appreciate and celebrate when you actually achieve it. Yeah. I don't think I ever had that problem. I've got to be honest. And uh, people who know me in England will definitely say that I celebrated, um, you know, at, always at the right time. Which I, which to me was like straight away after to enjoy that high feeling and that adrenaline that moment. Um, yeah, just the Olympic, the Olympic medal. I think we celebrated it maybe a, a couple of months. Two more, two more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: All right. Fair enough. Uh, did you ever like focus uh, 50-50 on men's doubles and mixed doubles or was it always mixed doubles that was like your, your first priority?
1: No, I mean, when I was uh, a young player, 19, 18, 19, 20, I actually only played men's doubles for a few years with Simon Archer. Oh. So I was only focused on the men's doubles. Um, people think that I might have played with Gail like throughout my career in mixed doubles, but she went off to university and was studying. And she didn't actually come out of university till 22, 23, and that's when we got back together. So we had those good years together from 2002 to 2008 um, after her university had finished. Um, but yeah, so I was, I was doing. I wasn't very often doing both events though. Um, but my most successful period was when I was probably just playing one event. Hmm. Yeah. All right.
0: Well, you, you've already touched a little bit on it, but I had a I had an interesting question from uh, Kim Astrup, one of the uh, good Dolls players in Denmark here now, and he uh, he says he he really enjoyed watching you play as well, uh, but he he was quite interested in hearing what you would say was like your your biggest quality or
1: asset uh, as a player. Uh, my biggest, I mean, my hatred for losing was a strength, uh, even though people, you know, parents now would say. Um, you know, to kids, oh, you shouldn't hate losing too much, but it really it drives a competitive fire inside yourself. Um, and then my strongest badminton quality, I think, which I find the hardest to coach now I'm a coach, is that I think I could see what was happening on the other side of the court um, with where people were move, moving, which meant I could see where the gaps were on the court. Uh, and certainly, when I was playing my best, uh, I found it and focused. I found it really easy. To kind of play shots and know that the opponents weren't there, um, but again, that is something very difficult to coach. And I always say to the other coaches, if we could teach anticipation and reading of the game easily, uh, we would like we would have the golden ticket. <laughs> yeah, for sure, it is one of the most difficult things to uh, to learn. I
0: think the like the only way to do it is to play a lot and maybe also watch a lot of uh, videos to get better understanding. But I feel sometimes it also it's It's almost impossible to to learn it at the the highest level if you just don't have it
1: yeah it's really difficult. I think I talk about it a lot as a coach now hmm. um, I talk about seeing seeing the picture on the other side of the court and hmm. seeing seeing the vision of course, when it's singles, um, you might see the gaps a little bit easier um because You know, there's not two players rushing around in in the court. We've got one, so the gaps can appear a bit easier. But in doubles, to see the picture can be difficult because now everyone is so fast and kind of pressing all the time, especially in in men's doubles. It's a a difficult picture to see gaps sometimes. Mm.
0: But I got quite a few questions uh, where some of the guys uh, that asked them also uh, Kind of gave the impression that that they saw you as a player where your biggest strength might might have been uh, the mental side of the game. So you're also talking a bit about that by saying, yeah, you can see the gaps and so on. But they also felt like you were uh, like a big game player that when it mattered the most, you would always kind of uh, be on top mentally and win win the mental battle and in some way get into the hit of uh, of your opponent. Would you, Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Um, like say for me, it was if I if I had this real 100% focus on, on achieving a result or a tournament, um, then I thought I was very difficult to beat then. Um, I, I had it almost all the time in team events, just because I was really desperate to lead the team um, if the mixed doubles was first, which it often was in team events. Um, so I very, very rarely lost many team matches um, against, all the top top pairs in the world um and yeah i think i just had this focus and as i got into those kind of you know golden years as you were talking about them i had this kind of tick list of tournaments i wanted to win uh and i kind of just ticking them off but once i'd won one i kind of lost the motivation for that tournament like the years after um, which is, you know, it's not a good thing to say, a positive thing, but that was just my character. I was just really focused to win it. And then, you know, there's, I ticked almost everything. Obviously, I didn't get the Olympic gold. And uh, the Danish Open was one I believe that I should have won. I think I lost in the final three times. Uh, right. And the Indian- Indonesian Open also, I didn't win because we lost in the final. But um, yeah, they're the only two really that I didn't tick off. So I can yeah. be quite.
0: Yeah, yeah yeah you can you can for sure but i i don't think it's a bad thing to say that that you kind of lost uh motivation to, to try and uh, win it again or desire is maybe the better word i'm sure you were still motiv- motivated when you went on court but we all we all uh yeah work differently and i, I think it's a, a strength that you could like so hard just set your sights on, on one thing and then then go for it and then just move on to to the next thing but then you've never really been a guy that was uh, interested in, in setting records or like trying to, yeah, win multiple times of, uh, yeah, of anything.
1: No, and I, I don't know, you know, we'll be totally honest and say my focus levels throughout the year, let's take mm. any year, it would just change a little bit. It just wouldn't always be like consistent hundred percent. It would just dip and come back up and, you know, and then I just needed to focus on the events. Um, but yeah. when maybe when I was... Maybe
0: you... It maybe you also needed that to to keep your level high like if you if someone had tried to force you into just keeping your focus high all the time then probably I would imagine that your motivation would then die out in, in, in some
1: way yeah and I think it maybe wasn't my character um to mm-hmm. do that all the time that intensity like every day the you know every single tournament it's it takes an unbelievable character to bring that the whole time especially if you're you know in the top top couple of players in It's in I find those players amazing uh, who go on to spend 10 years just number one and keep doing it time after time they have a you know a special chip in their brain which is letting them do this which not many players have at all um, so yeah I definitely wouldn't say I'm one of those um, but maybe I enjoyed my time a bit more than those guys who knows um, but yeah I did I did love the mental battle over the net as well because you're so close to your opponents and yeah, I liked looking people in the eye and thinking, okay, what's happening now?
0: Yeah, <laughs> uh, wouldn't you actually say that you would get more of that in in men's doubles compared to to mixed doubles because there's uh, maybe a bit more of uh, testosterone on on court in uh, in a men's
1: doubles? Yeah, there is, um, and yeah, I'm sure people who played against me would say they they had a good mental battle over the net, <clears> and uh, I know. You know, we laugh at with some of the Danish coaches like uh, Thomas Stangard and uh, mm. Jim Lappson, who do the uh, who does the, the TV now. That we had some good shouting battles, and the volume <laughs> <laughs> they got turned up a few levels. <laughs> I
0: imagine I know Lauge pretty well, Lappson pretty well, so I can imagine you've had some pretty uh, crazy battles with him. Did, did you usually uh, go out
1: on the winning side against them? I probably lost when I was young. Obviously, they probably beat me when I was like (laughs) fifteen, sixteen. He's a bit—he's a bit older than you are. But then, yeah, maybe I can't. I remember winning uh, a couple of important ones in the Europeans. So, yeah, that's my memory. I'll tell them that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Moving on to uh, to the next uh, subject, Nathan. I want to talk a bit more about uh, English badminton in general, and also uh, your position today as a uh, as a coach. Um, but I, w- I want to uh, start off by still talking about a- an old result, because in 2007, you were part of the uh, English team that won a Sudirman Cup bronze medal, uh, which for anyone listening who doesn't know is the World Mixed Team Championships. And without uh, offending anyone, it's not the level we see England at right now, where they can compete for, for medals in, a, in an event like that. Do, yeah. do, you see, do you see England in any way getting back to, the, uh, to that historic level of uh, achievements? Uh, is, is that possible for England, or is it too difficult now that the level has, has dropped uh, yeah, quite far from, from uh, being one of the
1: top three, four teams in the world? Um, I mean, yeah, we were—we definitely had a strong team there and deserved the medal. It was fantastic. Um, do I think we can get back there? Of course, I'm involved in, in the planning of bringing our players to the very top of the sport now. Um, and we have talent and, you know, we have a lot of players playing badminton. Um, taking them to the top is a very difficult journey, especially for a volume of players. Um, in England, we've, we've done it with a small number of players, um, maybe only one or two players every three or four years we're able to take into the top ten in the world. Um, but I think that we do have the number of players playing badminton in England, which is important. So then a lot of it comes down to our structure and the way we're coaching um, in all levels, um, not necessarily at the um, national centre. Um, because there's a lot of world-class experience there, I think it's more uh, for the coaching lower down. So we bring a higher level when when we see the players when they're kind of 16, 17. Um, so yeah, I have to believe it's possible. Um, I, as a coach, 100% believe I can, you know, create players who can play in the top 10 in the world. Um, so then we have to believe we can challenge if we can do it in all events. Um, but what we don't have uh, we don't have strength in all events right now uh, so to win a sudirman cup medal uh, we would need to bring up the level um, significantly of a few of our events um, certainly singles
0: yeah you've always been so good at producing world class players in uh, in the doubles categories both uh, yeah mixed men's doubles and uh, yeah but uh, also also uh, women's doubles do, do you think there's any like particular reason why? And it is in the later years. It's especially in in mixed doubles. you also see it now with uh, Chris and Gappy and uh, Marcus and, and Lauren, who are, are both. Uh, I think they're still ranked top ten in the world, both of them, right?
1: Yeah. Or yeah, ju- just around
0: different. top ten. Do, do you see any particular reason why why you're so successful in the uh, in the double categories and, and mixed doubles in uh, in particular?
1: In mixed doubles, obviously, we have the history. Hmm. I think players and partnerships just followed on or were inspired by those mixed doubles pairs winning. I was inspired by Simon Archer and Joe Good. Yeah. Uh, and that, you know I would hope that yeah, Chris and Gabby were inspired by myself and Gail and other players when they first came into the national training. Yeah. And I think Marcus and, and Lauren now have been inspired by Chris and Gabby and you know tried to catch them up and now competing with them. So... Uh, we have this history in mixed doubles um, of producing them, which doesn 't i don 't think it relates to us being better mixed doubles coaches than other event coaches it 's just a history that we have um, but yeah of course we 've had men 's double success in in Olympics as well with uh, language and ellis so it 's yeah, kind I mean- of it's just a mixed doubles history, but we don't really talk about it that much. It's just it's past history, and we're, you know, we're trying to produce all events. But is that maybe also
0: part of the challenge? Because then, how do you get started in, the, in these singles categories when, when you don't have that top player to kind of uh, lead the way and, and inspire people? I know you had Ratch who played at a high level, but it was still like he didn't win the Worlds or Olympic uh, medals. So it's still just a tier below. The absolute best. So is that part of the challenge? You don't have that kind of, uh, can I call it, a leading star in the single events?
1: Yeah, it's definitely part of it. I mean, it's what what kids, when kids are playing sport, if they're playing badminton and they're watching it online or on the television, and they're seeing, as far as England goes, they're seeing majority doubles success and doubles players on the TV. Um, where you play all events when you're young obviously you play singles and doubles and mixed a little bit in juniors not a lot, lot of mixed normally um, but then when you get older you you make the decision whether you're playing singles or doubles and sometimes if there's uncertainty they might choose doubles in England because they've seen uh, a lot of double success mm. um, but yeah, so really so you
0: actually you actually feel it from the juniors that that they are drawn a bit more towards uh, doubles if it, if it gets tricky or uh, if they need to
1: make a choice i don't feel it i just know that that's what they've seen over the last mm. 10 or 15 years they've seen the success um you know denmark you've seen a lot of men's single success um so a lot of the boys in denmark they'll be aspiring to be uh, the next Hans Christian or Victor or uh, yeah. I think
0: the one to be Victor, and <laughs> not Hans Christian. Uh, and <laughs> I'm happy with my career, but I think it's his is good. a bit better.
1: You're, you're a very popular player, so um, there will be people <laughs> aspiring. But that's what you have there. You have, you know, you have that men's singles history with Paul Eric, with all these players, Gader, Kennett. Um So you have that history. Our history is in mixed doubles, but. Um, we definitely don't focus more on that event. We have a we have an even spread uh, throughout. It's just yeah, we were we were successful in that, and we will continue to be, I'm sure. So,
0: yeah, and Lauren and uh, and Marcus and Chris and Gabby, they can keep on playing in the in the mixed for uh, for quite a few years as well. And that's uh, like they they're not that old yet.
1: No, they're not, and they're still fighting for the Olympic place when it all restarts <laughs> next year. So. Um, that battle will continue, and I'm sure it will it will stru- you know make them push on for even better results. Mm.
0: Do Do you work with uh, both pairs in, uh, on a daily basis?
1: Um, I I don't I don't lead on either of those pairs at the moment. So I lead on kind of the the players that are targeted for the Paris Olympics. Okay. Uh, which is um, Ben, uh, Ben Lane, Sean Bendy, um, we've got Callum Hemming and Jess Pew, which is a young, exciting mixed doubles pair that we have now. I um, also have um, a few of the older players in that group, which is Tom Wolfenden, Greg Mayers, Jenny Moore, and Vicky Williams. So, yeah.
0: yeah it's, a, it's an interesting group, and I think in, in general, actually in Europe, we have quite a few uh, interesting uh, young mixed doubles uh, pairs coming up at the moment.
1: Yeah, I think. All right, We'll always have that success in mixed doubles in Europe. Um, yeah, I think that it will continue in the future as well.
0: Yeah, probably, probably. I, w- I want to talk a bit about your your work as a coach, uh, Nathan. And uh, one thing that that comes to mind with the, all the experience you have, and also the way you describe your uh, mentality, that you could be a, maybe a bit up and down in your in your focus. Uh, is there anything that you try to teach your players to do differently than what you did yourself when uh, when you were a player?
1: Uh, well I think that throughout throughout my playing career I'd say people sometimes say things clicked as in mm. the realization that you had to do this kind of work or that mentality is needed and so working with these young players and um, some of them are 19 up to like 25 um, that thing or those things haven't always clicked in their uh, personality yet, whether it's professionalism, whether it's their you know response to being criticized, whether it's all these different things which come with maturity and come with experience. Um, so I think I'm very pushy, I would say, on them getting to those next levels um, of that, I think it's easier when you're working with players who you know have this natural drive to turn up every day and just put it all in and put it all on the court or all in the gym, wherever they're working. Uh, the other ones who dream of going to the Olympics, which is a realistic dream for some of them, but then they're not putting in that effort every day, um, then that's quite frustrating when you hear the words coming out of people's mouths. But then the actions don't reflect the words, uh, so that's something which I keep reminding them of. Uh, when you know they're saying they're tired, or they're saying, oh, "I'll just stop this session now because it's not very good," uh, mm. and I'll just say, "Okay, so we'll just stop your dream of being an Olympian now." Then, mm.
0: yeah. <laughs> uh, in in relation to that, actually, I got a really good question from uh, Jurgen van Leuven. You probably know him. I think he has a son who yeah. plays at the highest
1: level, right? Yeah, his, his son is a very talented player now in the England squad. So.
0: Yeah, all right. Jürgen is uh, one of my uh, most loyal supporters of the podcast, so uh, I wanted to take on this uh, question. He, he, he's asking if your, your current uh, coaching philosophy, would that work on a player with a character like yourself?
1: I would have been tough on myself, uh, yeah. for sure. Um, but that's knowing my... Um, my own character was a little bit up and down and Mm. not always like i said 100 percent focused on everything i was doing so Mm. i would have been tough on myself but i also understand coaching is you have to be flexible with each Mm. individual uh, and each individual's personality so um yeah i mean uh jürgen's son uh ethan who's yeah he is a very talented player but he can also be quite um up and down with his focus and happiness let's say on court so and I did a lot of work with him when he was uh, a junior in, in the apprentice team um, yeah. so yeah it's uh, it's an interesting one and I see a, I see a lot of um, my own character in his in his son so it will be interesting to see right. how he develops as well yeah,
0: yeah I'll, I'll try to keep an eye out for him and then uh, watch him play because as I said in the intro I always enjoy watching you play so I, I'm sure I will uh, I'll enjoy watching uh, him as well in, in the future uh but what you're just saying about like you have to be flexible uh depending on the the character of the player you're coaching i think that's one of the most uh common things that you hear from all top coaches that you have to be fe- flexible You cannot take just one philosophy and uh kind of put it down the throat of uh of anyone because because we all react differently to uh yeah, to being pushed hard or uh, yeah w- whatever you you prefer as a coach so you can't have just one one
1: philosophy and I'm sure you would would agree with that yeah certainly I I mean we lead on eight players um, Mm. and I'd say it's almost guaranteed that as a coach you won't connect um, in a great way with all eight players Um, it's not realistic although you would want to it's not realistic because Um, Personalities are so different, and yes, we can adapt our way of coaching and talking and communicating with players, Um, but it's not going to be a huge change on how we are as a coach because we are a personality and it's not going to change massively. Um, That would probably be a bit schizophrenic, to be honest, if you were like that. Um, So, uh, yeah, it's not, but connecting with players is the key, Uh, and you do have to work quite. Quite hard at that connection because you know as soon as you have a player and a coach with that trust and belief in each other, then suddenly the possibilities become a lot bigger. Mm. You sound uh, to me, you sound quite
0: passionate actually when you talk about uh, coaching. Is it like a, yeah? I'm sure it's a passion for you, but is it also a, a dream for you to to become like a full time coach that we see travel around the world with the national team all the time? Because you're not full time coaching at the national
1: Center now, right? No, I'm still, you know, I'd say I'm 80, 90% in with the England team uh, and then 90% enjoying my time, which I always like to do. So it kind of replicates my playing career when I'm a little bit like this. But of course, I'm, you know, I'm all in with the players I'm helping and they know that. They don't see me as part time, they see me as their full time coach. Um, but yeah, I'd say it is, I don't know if it's a dream uh, to be the coach. I'm very proud. That I represented England as a player and I can't imagine representing anyone else as a coach because I have this English blood uh, Mm -hmm. and it's like badminton blood also so I did consider when I stopped uh, being a player if I should do something else with my uh, like my career as in working in sports management or something like that Mm -hmm. Uh, but I feel like this badminton fire and the blood was just I couldn't stop it so I had to stay in the sport, and I I love I love walking into the hall, almost every day, and I love you know seeing people play great badminton. Final part,
0: Nathan is uh, a part that I have in all the interviews with the, all the the amazing guests I have on uh, I've had on uh it's uh, three listener questions all my listeners get a chance to uh, to ask questions and i know you saw a few of them on uh, on twitter uh, i also had quite a few on uh, on instagram uh, so the questions can be about uh, anything it doesn't have to relate to each other to each other in in any way yeah uh, so if you're if you're up for it then i'll uh, i'll hit you up with the first one here Let's go. it's from uh, Adnan karim he's uh, simply just asking your toughest match that you ever played?
1: My toughest match I ever played. Mm. Um, well I've got like my toughest opponents, Mm. um, which was in mixed doubles. I believe it was Tricus Hardianto from Indonesia. (laughs) Um, who was an incredibly skillful mixed doubles player who had deception everywhere and amazing stop <laughs> clears. And, and uh, Gale was didn't read deception very well. So we were all over the place. And uh, you know, we were scrambling everywhere. So, and we only once beat him, but that is still a very special victory. I think we lost quite a few times. So uh, uh, he, 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 was, he played
0: with Minati Timur, right?
1: Minati Timor, yes. Yeah, so uh. They were Olympic silver medalists earlier, so we joined the club with those guys. Um, <laughs> so they, they were kind of the toughest opponents. Um, my toughest match, I'd have to say, was the 2006 All-England Final, um, okay. which uh, people probably don't remember because we remember 2005, which is great, which is what I remember also. <laughs> uh, in 2006, we played uh, in the final Zhang Jun and Gowling, who obviously we had... Uh, great rivalry with an Olympic history and we had a sold out arena in Birmingham and a lot of expectation and uh, we, had, we played a great match and we won the first game and then we had five match points in the second game oh, and we lost and it was we went to three and in those in that scoring system you had a five minute break in between two and three. And I remember sitting down with my coach, Andy Wood, uh, and I think Julian Robertson, and just going, I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> they, were, they were like, no, you're joking. Come on, refocus. I'm like, no, I've got nothing left. I've blown in my head totally. And uh, and we went on and lost the third game 15-1 in like ah. 10 and I was just so embarrassed to do that at the All England and all the crowd was so excited and then it was just you know going from winning the year before being the best feeling you know in, yeah. in the whole stadium and then that feeling in 2006 was just terrible
0: uh, that's a that's an understandable choice of uh toughest toughest match i can't even imagine having uh, five match points and uh, not, not closing it
1: out yeah, yeah.
0: second uh, question is from uh, a guy who calls himself el Tino martino so that's a pretty oh, cool name right. so that that that's why I took on the question. Uh, he is, uh, he's asking what you see as the uh, key elements you need to master today to be successful in, uh, in mixed doubles.
1: Well, mixed doubles now, it's uh, a quite aggressive game. Um, the serve and return in mixed doubles is still always one of the key elements. Um, and you have to compete in that area. Um, especially now because if you don't compete in that area then you give the attack away too much Um, so you still have to compete in that area but for the girls now um, I think the girls are so strong in mixed doubles and they're so dangerous um, that the game has become a real battle in the mid-court area so the mid-court area is the key area in mixed doubles Um, if you win that battle that means you can step forward to take the net if you lose that battle then you're defending. And nowadays, the attacks, you know, players like Jordan and, you know, Zheng Siwei with his, he's got incredible um, change of pace and direction change. So once you give the attack away to these guys, it's, there's normally not a lot of coming back against them. No,
0: I think Zheng Siwei is one of the fastest players I've I've ever seen. And that's across all disciplines, also uh, singles. He's crazy, crazy fast.
1: Yeah, he's basically just jumping to every shot from the center of the court. Um, yeah, yeah. Which is something we're teaching the junior players now, which is exciting for them. And it's great yeah. to show them videos of uh, players like him and say, this is the way we're going to be moving now.
0: Mm. Yeah, and it, it makes sense because then if he gets the attack, I should say you, you don't get out of it in any way because you can just yeah, jump all over the court and, and just keep the initiative going all, all the time. Yeah, and, and then, of the course, back- at, at some point he's going to hit a winner.
1: Yeah, it's a player without the biggest power in the world, but the speed is so dangerous and it's a weapon. So uh, just goes to show you don't need the biggest smash to be very, very effective overhead. Mm.
0: Final question for today, Nathan is uh, from a guy called Griffin genre. And he's asking about your uh, very first uh, big international medal. And that's a world junior bronze medal you won in uh, 1994. Yeah. So that, that, that says a bit about your age, and I'm sorry about that. Oh, it's just a uh, fact. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he's just asking if you have uh, any kind of special memories from uh, from that tournament, and if it is like one of the your first really great memories of, of knowing that maybe you could actually make it to uh, to the very top of uh, of world badminton.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't have actually clear memories of that. I know we went to um, an Asian trip to Thailand and Malaysia and we played a warm-up tournament and then the World Junior Championships. Um, but yeah, I know I was playing with Gail, um, but I hadn't had um, a really successful junior career. Uh, I wasn't even in the England team until I was 16. Okay. Um, in the England junior team, it just wasn't good enough. And then suddenly I just was kind of going like this and obviously found a focus and suddenly went a lot higher and a steeper curve uh, of improvement. And then we won European Junior Championships at 16 and lots of um, Junior Internationals just very quickly sort of as a surprise. And the World Junior Championships was, I think it's bigger and more important now uh, than it was then. Um, I can't remember having much history or feeling about it when I was a young Mm -hmm. player Uh, I think we had more actually had more feeling about playing kind of European six nations tournaments uh, Mm -hmm. against Denmark and Sweden uh, than we did about the rest of the world because we never really saw the rest of the world Um, and being a professional badminton player at that time it wasn't really something that people in England did uh, Mm -hmm. or I didn't see it as a clear career Um, so we were kind of just playing not for fun, but just playing because it was what we did. Yeah, uh, and, and then things happened after that uh, quite quickly, obviously. But we still, we didn't have a national centre in England when, when I was 17 or 18. So it only happened just after
0: yeah all right uh, i think it makes sense what you say that it's it's probably bigger nowadays uh, or of bigger importance the the world junior championships and i think the addition in in nineteen ninety four when when you played was also maybe only the second time in history that they actually played the world juniors so it was yeah, also kind of a new tournament back then
1: yeah i don't i you know i do i do remember actually uh one thing I do remember from it was that um peter Gator obviously was a top European player and he was a big favorite for it and he lost in the singles and it was a big shock but then he won the men's doubles uh, so <laughs> he, was, he was doubles champion and uh, yeah it was just it was funny watching that
0: yeah yeah uh, he, he's uh, obviously quite known in Denmark for for winning that men's doubles title because he was uh, such a big legend in, in singles I had also uh actually written it in my uh, in my notes for uh, in my notes for, for this interview that the, the Gator one immense men's doubles because if you didn't have any memories, then uh, I, I was going to bring that up. But uh, yeah, it yeah, I, came to you uh, in the final moment. So that, that's great, Nathan. Nathan, it's been uh, an absolute pleasure having you on. Uh, I could keep on talking for quite some time, but uh, we've uh, been talking for almost an hour now. So uh, to not bore the listeners, I will, uh, I will let you uh, have the rest of your evening to yourself.
1: Thank you very much. It's been great and I just hope that we get back to playing some competitions soon because I know that everyone misses them and, you know, fans and players and coaches and everyone that, yeah, hopefully we'll get back soon and 2021 will be a, a much better year for the sport. Yeah, I
0: definitely hope so as so, well and I, I hope to see you at the Denmark Open Are you're coming for, for that, if, uh, if it's on.
1: Yeah, if it's on, then I'm coming. And yeah, I'll be coming. With quite a lot of English players, I believe, as we have quite a lot who are in the tournament now. So.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a few extra uh, spots now that most of the Asians are uh, pulling out. All right, I, ho- I hope to see you there, Nathan. Uh, thanks so much for uh, for taking time out to to do this uh,
1: podcast with me. Thank you. You're welcome. See you soon. See you.
0: So it's time to find the winners of the two shirts I promised to give away to you patrons. I've given you one lot per dollar you are donating, so that means we have 79 lots. So I've made 79 lots, each one with a, a name on it and I put it in my small fourth toilet bag actually. So now I will find two names and see who wins the shirt and of course it can be the same person winning both. The first name is Kipster, and the second name is Yekti. So, Kipster and Yekti, you won the shirts. So, you can send me an email on ayeontour at gmail.com, or you just send me a message on social media, and then we will figure out how to get the shirt to you guys. Thanks so much for your support, everyone. And I will be back with a competition again next month, because from now on, I will do a competition for you guys each month. See you next time.
1: Thank you for listening to A Year on Tour with Wittinghus. If you enjoyed the show, please
0: rate, share and leave a comment in iTunes or your preferred podcast app.